Well, good morning. Again, it's always a pleasure uh, to be here. I uh, just want to just really quickly remind us, you know, that there are spiritual forces at work um, against us. Satan desires to not have the name of Christ proclaimed, and uh, I have no doubt... I had a rough week, let's just say that. But um, Satan will not stop today's message, and that has been my prayer. Because I think the message today is one of the greatest messages that we can hear. And um, my prayer has been that Satan would be pushed aside and the obstacle would be held against him. And uh, as we go through the message today, I just want you to keep that in mind, that there will be things that work in your life against you. And know that there are spiritual forces that don't want you to do the ministry of Christ. But what did I preach last week? Boy, I'm sorry, guys. It's Thank you. I uh, had a little moment of prayer with a brother Dale before this, and I thought I could uh, get this out of my system. But man, it was a powerful uh, moment there of worship. And uh... all right, let's do this. Let's do this. Open up to John 17. Let's open up to John 17 here. There are lots of moments in our lives that we look forward to, many of them that we think about. Right, there's those, those special days that we have. You know, I think about the, the moment we finally get to drive, that first full-time job that we get, getting to buy our first house, getting married and having that first kid. I think those are kind of those pinnacle moments in our lives that, that as kids, we're, we're always looking forward to, to say, I, I can't wait till we get to that moment. I can't wait until we can get to that place in time. And uh, there's that feeling of freedom, the feeling of, of independence, the, the sense that, you know, I, I'm an adult now and, and, and I can do the things that I want to do. And there's a lot of excitement that happens. But as we get close, there are those feelings of nervousness, right, and anxiousness. I mean, they're all wonderful things. But I, I, I think about when I went for my driver's license and you're sitting there and your, your, your hands are gripped around the steering wheel and that person next to you you've never met is just sitting there with a clipboard. I, I think about going for my first job interview and, and sitting in a room and there they are, just multiple people staring at you, firing questions at you, determining whether you are worthy enough to be a part of their company. Thinking about the first time I went to buy my house and just constantly crunching the numbers again and again and thinking, how can I make this work? Or, or, or my wedding day where I know my wife was running around and getting herself ready and I just remember sitting there just waiting and waiting and just so anxious and thinking, I just want this to happen. I just want this moment to be over with because I'm just ready to start the rest of my life with her. 
And then those nine months that happen before your first child and you're just so excited and you're doing everything you can to prep for this child. And then, then the baby comes out and you see the face and you hear the, the sound and the joy that is just so overwhelming. And then they're like, here, you have to take this home. And you're like, oh my gosh, I'm a parent, right? These are moments in our lives that we look forward to. And these are great and wonderful moments. And Christ has just been with his disciples. And again, if you haven't been with us, we've been starting at John 12 and been working through this last week of his life. And he's been with his disciples and he's been teaching them and he's been prepping them for what is about to happen. This significant moment in the ministry of Jesus Christ and in the moment of human uh, history is about to happen. And he's been trying to encourage them. And he's been trying to explain, listen, guys, I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen because I know you're going to be nervous. You're going to be scared. You're going to be worried. I'm letting you know it's going to be okay. And again, I have overcome. This victory has been won. And I want you to be at peace when you think all hope is lost. And so last week he finishes with his disciples. And as I said, we're going to start to kind of transition a little bit now because now he steps back. And he, he's going to pray. And so for the next three weeks, we are going to hear the prayer of Christ before he's about to embark on the greatest moment that we will witness in all of history. And on the eve of this moment, he's preparing for what is the paradox of the cross, that through death we find life. So as I said, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to John 17. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you have granted him authority over all people and that he might give eternal life to all of those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So again, he says, the hour has come. You know, I titled the sermon series, it's time, and today's message is, it's time. Jesus is letting his disciples hear his prayer, and he's saying, everything that I've been moving towards, this is it. This very precious moment in time has now come to be fulfilled. And, and we see that in Ephesians 1. He says, with all wisdom and understanding, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under Christ. So again, prior to the creation of the world, God had established this plan for mankind. And God said at just the right moment, when I am ready to fulfill my plan, I am going to set it in motion. 
And prior to this, we have several times where people are pushing Christ to the forefront to say, Christ, do your work, do your ministry. And he keeps pushing them off and he says, it's not time, it's not time, it is not time. And now he says, now this is the moment that we have been waiting for. He's going to fulfill the wishes. He's going to revolutionize the world through one act of sacrificial obedience. And this obedience is going to cost him his life. But it is for our benefit. And what do we notice? That again, this is for God's glory. That we have this sandwich portion of a prayer. And at the, the top slice and the bottom slice is about the glory of God that is to be had. And when we started, we started in John chapter 12. And let me just go back to a verse here. It says, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Christ, Christ committed himself to this death. Christ committed himself to his kingdom to his disciples, to his people. He's committed himself to this glory. And again, this is the moment that is going to begin to prove that. It's a death that was a certainty in the plan of God, and he understands that. It is a plan that is going to bring the ultimate glory to who God is. And this is a message of glory that is the overriding message of the entire scriptures, which is all about the glory of God. To praise him, to honor him, to magnify his name, to bring honor and worship and give worthiness to the name of Jesus Christ. And so if we look at the scriptures, we can see this. If we start in Genesis 1, right, how does he start? He says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then a little bit later, he says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So God creates the world, and then God creates mankind. And we tell there in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hand. And Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who was called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. So when God makes the world and when God makes us, he says, the reason why I did all of this was for my glory, was for my benefit. The whole universe, the trees, the mountains, the oceans, the fish, the air that we breathe is all proclaiming my glory. And the very life that you live is for my glory. That is the overarching message of the Bible. Now, I was at a conference years ago, and the speaker was talking, and he said, this entire world is all about God's love for mankind. And somebody close by whispered to someone else, and he said, I kind of disagree. He said, because it's not all about God's love. He said it's about God's glory manifested through his love. And I thought that's powerful. Because see, if it's just about God's love for us, who becomes the object of affection? It's us. And we become center stage. 
We put ourselves on the pedestal and say, we are so amazing that God loves us. And that is not the case. We don't deserve God's love. But out of his goodness, he chose to give it to us. Because when we make it about you and me, what do we do? We strip the very thing that we were created for, which is the glory of God. And so when we look in the Old Testament, we, we see a lot of these passages where God is extremely protective about his name. And let me just give you a couple of these so you understand what I'm talking about. In Isaiah 48, he says, For my own sake, for my own sake I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. And then in Ezekiel, But for the sake of my name, I brought them out of Egypt. For I did it to keep my name from being profaned in the eyes of the nations among whom they live and whose sight I have revealed myself to the Israelites. Exodus 14. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through the Pharaoh and the chariots and his horsemen. I will defend the city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David my servant. And he guides me along the path for his name's sake. So I want to drill that into us now. Right? This is about God's glory. It is not about you and me. It is about the glory of God that is to be had. That is about the reason why he has come to this very moment. And God is not going to share that glory with anyone else. It's just like in this world that when an artist creates a masterpiece, no one else can claim that and claim the credit and the rewards for that. And God is no different. God is the masterpiece of this universe, and he is going to get the glory for what he has made. Now, there's another reason why we glorify God, not just because he made us and he deserves everything. But we're told in this passage here of why. Verse 2, it says, For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all of those that you have given him. We glorify God because he's been granted the authority. We're speaking about Christ here. He's granted us the authority to give eternal life. So, so let me walk through this of, of understanding the nature of Christ and why Christ is given this glory. We see there in Romans 3, right? There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Right? What do we see here? We see that we have made a mistake. What were we designed for? The glory of God. And we failed to live up to that expectation. And because we have failed to live up to that expectation, we're not doing the job that we're supposed to do. God in his justice has told us that the wages of our sin is death. That there is consequence for our failures and our sins in life. Now understand that this authority that Christ has been given, this is a legal authority. Like we're talking a courtroom legality here. Right? That, that if there is a legal punishment for the things that we have done wrong, 
then it is only going to be Christ that can grant us the, the, the legal pardon from our sins. And God is just. We cannot deny that. That is throughout the scriptures. But we also understand through the scriptures the nature of God that said he is also loving and caring and forgiving. And God doesn't desire to be apart from us. He desires to be in relation with us. So in Leviticus, in the Old Testament, God had established a system. It says, for the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. See, the consequences again of our sin is death. Something has to satisfy the wrath of God. And in the Old Testament, God said, listen, I'm going to create a temporary solution to this. That if you are willing to bring an animal, an animal without blemish, an animal without spot, a perfect animal, and you are willing to take its life and sacrifice it on your behalf, then I will temporarily set aside my wrath for you. But we also have to understand that the life of an animal is never equatable to the life of a man, right? It's easy to go to a barn and say, I've messed up and pull a chicken out or, or pull a goat and, and take that animal's life and say, well, it's not my life, that's okay. They, they don't match up. It's apples to oranges. And what God is saying here, that's a temporary solution, but at some point, there has to be a full restoration of that. And the only restoration that can happen is if we're going to exchange the life of one man for the life of another. Because that's the only thing that's equatable. He says, the, 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 the holy is going to have to take the life of the profane. The innocent is going to have to take the place of the guilty. And only then will I be fully satisfied in terms of my wrath. And so what happened? We all messed up. You and I have all sinned. You and I have all disqualified ourselves from being that perfect substitute to die for the wrath. And so, again, in his goodness, he said, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ. And he's going to live, and he's going to do the ministry and the work, and he's going to go to the cross, and he's going to die for you and me. Because we see that in 2 Corinthians, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? He will be the holy for the profane. He will be the innocent for the guilty. He will be for you and me what we could never be for ourselves or for anyone else. And then in 1 John 2, he becomes the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the entire world. And that word atonement means to cover over. That when Christ had gone to the cross and he shed his blood, that that blood was covering over our guilt. 
so that when Christ looked at us, he no longer saw our sin, but he saw the saving grace of Jesus Christ's blood, and that had satisfied permanently, once and for all, his wrath. And so Romans 5 tells us, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And again, that word justify is also a legal term. As I said, only Christ could legally pardon. And so as we stand in the courtroom and all of our sins are presented against us and the gavel hits the table and he says, you are guilty of death, Christ now steps into our place takes that wrath, and then God looks at us and he says, go, you are now forgiven. You have now been freed and pardoned from your sins. So, so that is why Christ has the authority to grant us eternal life, because he is the only one that could satisfy this wrath. But now we see in the next part of John here, the process. So what happens next? Verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That in order to have this pardon, what do you and I have to do? Well, we have to know the true God. And notice we attach the word Jesus Christ. You know, there, there are so many people in this world that I encounter so many times on television. How many athletes will give praise to God and then people go, oh, that person's a Christian. They've praised God. And I think there's a big difference between, between praising God and uttering the lips of Jesus, uttering Jesus Christ with our lips. There's a big distinction between that. And I think that's why Christ specifically prays this prayer the way that he does. Because, see, if we are going to be in an intimate and personal relationship with God, and that's what it means when it says to know him, it's the idea that this is also relational. It's not just a head knowledge of God, but I relationally know him. I have to know the one true God. Remember, we are in a time period of paganism and polytheism. The Egyptians had their multiple gods. The Greeks had their multiple gods. The Romans had their multiple gods. And what Christ is saying, no, 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 there are not multiple gods. There are many false gods that will pull you away from the one true God, which is the Yahweh, the God of Israel. That is the God that you need to know. It is not Ra. It is not Zeus. It is not Jupiter. Those are not the true gods. It is the God of Israel that you need to know. And furthermore, you need to know Jesus Christ. Now, what's really interesting in history is that when Christianity began, Rome had no problem with Christianity. Because Rome saw Christianity as simply a part of Judaism. And they had already struck a deal with the Jews that said, you can basically have your religion, just don't cause any more problems and, and we'll, we'll leave you alone just fine. But when the Romans started to realize, wait a minute, this Christianity is actually not like Judaism. This is something completely different. 
When the Romans began to realize that Christ was challenging the Godhead of Caesar himself, that's when the Romans began to persecute the Christians. Because they said, wait a minute, we were okay with Judaism, but we are certainly not okay with this. And they began to outlaw the Christians. And they began to throw them to the animals in the gladiatorial games. And they began to set them on fire and torture them for the name of Christ. And so that's why it's so important that when we say to know the one true God, it is not simply just calling out the name of God, but it is uttering the name of Jesus Christ. Because when we utter the name of Christ, it turns us away from the pagan polytheistic nature and the Jewish theology of the day and says that what I believe is something completely and totally different than the world has ever seen before. And so in order to know Christ, in order to have the eternal life, we then have this in Romans, that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So it is through, again, the nature of Christ that he gives us the ability to have eternal life. And it is through the personal relationship that we have with Jesus Christ that grants us eternal life. And understand that when this happens, this is a done deal. This is spoken in the tense that it has been accomplished. I do not have to do anything else any longer. I don't have to keep coming to my knees and asking him to forgive me in my heart again and again to be saved. I don't have to keep coming back and saying I'm sorry for this or sorry for that. I don't have to keep working at something thinking that, that so many good deeds will get me in. That has been accomplished when you and I embrace Christ as our Savior. Because the authority to give life comes through Christ alone, and only eternal life is found in Christ, and Christ alone. And so now we come to the next part of the prayer. He prays, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. What is that work that he's speaking of? We go back to John 6 when he says, Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That is the work of Christ, is for us to believe. So, so the, the work that he does should result in belief, right? It should be resulting in the glorification of Jesus Christ. So when Christ does all of his ministry, and he does his teachings, and then he does his miracles, and he goes to the cross and he dies, and then he resurrects himself. All of those are his work for the purpose that we would believe in him. And the result of his existence, the result of his character, the result of his nature, again, is all resulting in the glorification of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. That is all of the work that he's doing. 
And why that happens is this, is because when you and I encounter the miracles and the teachings and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what does it cause us to do? It causes you and I to confront the sins in our lives. It causes us to stand before God and realize the deserved nature of the wrath that we should have. And see, that, that's where the world struggles, right? The world struggles with the idea that there is a heaven and a hell. The world struggles with the concept that an almighty, all-powerful, loving, good, gracious, forgiving God would send people to hell. And we talked about this weeks ago that we said Christ doesn't send people to hell. It is our own belief that chooses us to go there. But I think that's the problem. The reason why the unbelieving world says that is because they haven't encountered the holiness of God. Because when we don't understand the holiness of God, we don't understand the wrath of God. We don't understand what it is that you and I deserve. But when I see and understand the work of Christ, I'm standing there face to face with him and I can't help but look away. I can't help but to realize the sinful state of who I am. And the only thing to do is to get on my knees and beg for forgiveness. But see, that's where the glory happens, right? That's where the glorification of the Father happens. Because the moment that you and I get to that place where we realize I deserve the wrath of God, we also realize that Christ has stepped in to take that wrath. That it is in the midst of God's holiness and justice that we see the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of what God has done for us. That is why we praise the Father, because we understand that I deserve death and I've now been made alive. Nothing upon what I have done, but all because of the affectious work of Christ. And so that's why he repeats this idea. That's, that's why this is the bread to the, to the meat of everything that goes on. When he says, glorify your son so that you may be glorified. Glorify me in your presence which I had with you. Why is this all about God's glory? Because of all of the pieces that we just talked about. There's a reason why when the angels came, what do they start with? They say, glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace to whom his favor rests. There's a reason why Matthew sums up the ministry and the work of Christ when he said great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, the many, and lay them at his feet, and he heals them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And there's a reason why Paul writes in Corinthians that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God. Guys, we don't have to only praise God when the miracle happens in our lives. Because every breath that we take is a miracle unto itself that we have not been killed. 
that we have not been given the wrath that we deserve. Every step that you take, right? Every, every piece of morsel of food that you eat should all be turned into praise of God because again, every moment I do anything in this world is only because Christ has chosen to love me and save me. You know, I, I think about when we have dinners at our house, my wife loves spaghetti. I do not. But I'll tell you what, the next time I eat spaghetti, you know what I should do? Praise God that there's food in my stomach and I'm alive. I, I want us to be reminded of one little final piece here before we close this out. Christ has just spoken with his disciples. He's told them everything that he needs to do. He's done his best to convince them, to remind them that everything is going to be okay. And then what does he do next? He looks up to his father and he prays. He prays. He is about to go to the cross. He is about to suffer one of the most agonizing deaths that man has conjured up. He's about to endure the humiliation and the embarrassment of the cross. And he goes to his father in prayer. And it's a prayer for what? For glory. You and I, again, are going to walk this journey. And we don't know when our lives are going to end. But we have all experienced heartache. We have all experienced pain and trials and difficulties. We have all experienced loss. And if God grants you breath to go to tomorrow, and if God grants you breath to go another 5, 10, 15, 40, 50 years, well, guess what? Those difficulties are still going to come. But just because we struggle in life doesn't negate the praise and glory for our Father. So in the good and the bad... We have to remember why you and I were created. You and I were created for the glory of God. So let us go. Let us go this week. Let us go in the moment by moment days and praise him. Because why? Because all glory belongs to him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you that this message was preached again because this was a message to remind us about why we are here. I have not put on this world to be given everything. I have not been put on this world for comfort, to have a nice house, to have a great cushy job. I have not been put on this world to be adored and accoladed. Father, I have been put on this world to bring you all kinds of glory and fame. Lord, I have been placed here by your gracious hand to be in a relationship with you. And we praise you in the midst of difficulties and trials. We praise you in the goodness of our lives, in the big and the small. God, we praise you. We praise you because that is what you deserve. And it is out of your great love for us 
that we get to experience that glory. So let joy reside over our lips. Let peace rule in our hearts. Let us approach the difficulties and trials of our days with knowing, God, that you have overcome this world and all glory and power and praise is to you. And let us be a testimony and a light to a world that doesn't know you. Thank you, God. Thank you, thank you, thank you. As I said, let joy well up and overflow for what you have done. Amen.